This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for November 3rd, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, over the almost two years since COVID-19 was first recognized, the world's changed in many ways, but our understanding of the disease and how to treat it, how to prevent it, has also changed and continues to change on an almost daily basis. Given this ongoing tide of change, do you see any way out of this pandemic? Where are things going to end? I'd like to talk about that today, but before we get to it, let's talk about one piece that we published. Lindsay, you're an author on this piece, so I'm going to ask Eric to summarize and give his thoughts about it, and then you can have a chance to try to correct him. The question that Lindsay and his colleagues asked was, how well does mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine, protect against the Delta variant of SARS-CoV-2, and how durable is that protection? So how did Lindsay and his colleagues approach this, and what did they find? Steve, the original phase three study of this vaccine contained both vaccine and placebo groups. During the open label period starting in December 2020, those in the placebo group could elect to receive open label vaccine. This created two groups, those vaccinated early and those vaccinated late. The investigators determined the rate of infection in July and August when Delta accounted for most cases. And in fact, that turned out to be true because sequencing of viruses from many of those infected confirmed that they were overwhelmingly Delta. This was a large group with more than 14,000 participants in the early group and 11,000 in the late group. Altogether, there were 162 cases in the early group and 88 in the late group. There were only 19 severe cases overall. 13 of these were in the early group, but only three patients were hospitalized and two died, all in the early group. The investigators concluded that during the Delta era, protection is better in more recent recipients than in those who are vaccinated early in the outbreak. I'd say that these results are consistent with the studies of BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine. But once again, it's important to look at the absolute numbers. There were a small number of cases and a tiny number of hospitalizations, despite the fact that the vaccines don't appear to be as effective against the Delta variant. So as you've said with similar studies, there may be some decrease in protection over time, but for the endpoints that we really care about, the most severely ill patients, it's still awfully good. So Steve, I'm not in a position to correct Eric. However, to sort of think a bit about what we learn from these data. And I think a very important element that we struggle with as a community is understanding how we compare data of those vaccinated early versus later. And I mean that not in an RCT format, but in many of the other data sets that we look at, where we look at those vaccinated in January versus those vaccinated later, let's say five months later in May. And are they really the same individuals in their approach to COVID prevention strategies, occupational or health risk? And these become very important factors to try and control for as we try to understand waning immunity and what that means. What these data show in an RCT format, although there are differences as there is differential dropout, but in a group vaccinated about five to six months earlier than the other group, what we see in the setting of time a year later from the initial vaccinees versus seven months later in the later vaccinees, and in the context of the Delta surge, where there's a lot more community infection force, we see differential breakthrough infection 
with some of the biases of why people got vaccinated early versus later being minimized. And it shows a signal that there may be waning efficacy of the vaccine. And these are consonant with other reports for both mRNA vaccines in a variety of settings. But I do want to highlight, Eric, the point that you made, which is overall protection against severe illness and illness in general seems much higher than in the unvaccinated, substantial protection. However, there is differential breakthrough in those who are vaccinated earlier versus later with mild to moderate illness. So these are ways for us to understand the strength of the immune response in the face of strong community infection pressure and give us insights as to where we may have waning immunity and there may be benefit in augmenting the immune response. But it's important to realize this is to prevent mild or moderate because severe illness still has substantial protection. I think one of the important points here is that it offers some guidance to physicians who are caring for patients who receive the Moderna vaccine. Most of the data we've had has been for Pfizer. And the question of waning immunity is a little bit clearer there from real world studies that don't have the randomized population that was here. And it's clear that there is some waning immunity and the results look somewhat similar to the results that we're seeing here. Because Moderna has not been used in some of the countries from which we're developing the real world data, we don't have as much data and it's harder to know what is right to tell a patient. These data suggest that like Pfizer, there is some waning. However, there is still very good protection against severe disease, as we keep saying. And so when it comes to the question of boosters, I think the formulation is pretty much the same, which is that those at high risk might well deserve a booster. And for those at low risk, there's likely to be less benefit of boosting. In addition, Eric, I think these data remind us how we are learning as we go. Those who were part of the initial phase three trials for both mRNA vaccines are just now a little over a year post their initial enrollment. So we're still learning about the durability of the immune response. By design and reality, we're looking at months of follow-up, not years of follow-up. But given the overall devastation of SARS-CoV-2, I don't think there's a better approach. It also means we're trying to draw inference on what to do with early signals of how well our preventative strategies work. So the early signal of waning immunity is breakthrough mild, moderate infection. How significant is this? In which population is it occurring? What's the level of severe illness that we really care about? These are all issues that we wish we had much more robust data. But to wait for the robust data months from now means that we may have some more significant transmission and illness. And it's a real challenge on the public health policy side. How do we make the best policy, given that we have data that are continuing to grow and provide insight, and which lines of data are compelling enough? And what's also not here is transmission. And that's something that we need more data on. How does augmenting the immune response impact transmissibility, infectiousness? And that would become very important from a public health standpoint, because then we would have more tools to try and block spread in addition to individual illness. 
I entirely agree. And I'd add that this is a moving target. Not only will we know more over the course of several more months, but we'll also have a better timescale and get an idea if waning immunity is something that continues and that immunity decreases over a longer time period, or if actually it sort of stabilizes and we are where we are. So lots more to learn, as is always the case, but decisions have to be made with incomplete information. Let's get back to the question of ending the pandemic. I realize there's no foolproof way to predict the future, but let's talk a little bit about what could happen. How could we either eliminate the disease or mitigate it to the point where it isn't having such a profound effect on lives around the world? Let's start with the concept of herd immunity. Is that our way out? We heard a lot about herd immunity early in the epidemic and perhaps less so now. Herd immunity requires first that the level of immunity in the population, in other words, the number of people who are immune is large. How large is some question of debate, but it has to be very high. And that the immunity is both persistent and gives a high level of protection. We don't know if either of those are true. In fact, we know they're not entirely true. We don't know much about persistence of immunity after infection. And we certainly don't know whether or not immunity after infection is fully protective against disease. Some early studies suggested that it wasn't, at least against some of the variants. Later studies are conflicting right now. It's certainly true that people who are infected have a range of responses. Some of them produce very high levels of immunity, at least as measured by antibody, and some don't. And so relying on enough infection out there to give high levels of immunity may not work. And of course, and this is going to apply to any question you ask of us, new variants could well emerge. So I think that herd immunity, at least for me, seems to be the least reliable of any strategies for getting us to an end to this. I guess, Stephen, Eric, I would look at the question a little bit differently in how do we define our way out? Is our way out no further transmission? We eradicate SARS-CoV-2 as we did with SARS-CoV-1, if I may call it that. Or do we accept the fact that it is now an endemic virus, but may it become more like the seasonal coronaviruses that none of us really cared about prior to SARS-CoV-2 emerging, and now we think about the coronaviruses differently? So I think we have to think a little bit more about what is our goal. And if our goal is to prevent severe illness, then many of our tools can be used in ways to achieve this. I think if our goal is to eradicate transmission and existence of this virus in the human population, I'm not sure that's possible. So we have to think a little bit about what our goal is. And Eric, as you pointed out with variants, we have to think about these emerging variants. Some of the variants emerge to increase transmissibility, a more fit virus, a more transmissible virus. It's able to be more successful in spreading between people. Other variants may have immune escape based upon selective pressure on the virus and certain immune responses that are particularly potent, if the virus escapes those, then it has the potential of becoming a lot more dangerous, particularly if those escape variants are escaping vaccine-elicited immunity and prior wild-type infection immunity. So I think that that is also another factor that we have to be mindful of. Thus far, the variants 
don't seem to be escaping the immunity induced in a way that leads to severe illness. The major challenge now is getting as much of the world vaccinated so they are protected. But it is something that if it occurs would become a real setback, which is why there's such an urgency to get control of transmission now. So the virus has less chance of escaping in a way that would be much more devastating. So I think that's an important part of this answer. The question that many have raised is, should we be trying to control infection or should we not be trying to control infection so that we can have broad immunity elicited by infection? Now, the problem with the latter model is that number one, and most importantly, a lot of people are going to get sick and a lot of people are going to die if we just wait around for herd immunity to occur, if such a thing could exist. But also we increase the breeding of virus and increase the chances of the emergence of a variant. So I think from a strategy standpoint, I hope we're past this because this does not seem like a particularly good way of controlling disease, whether your endpoint is eliminating transmission or eliminating disease severity. So Eric, I think it is very important as we think about the concept of herd immunity, that this is a concept where we enhance the immunity of our global community, not only our local communities, to diminish spread and transmission, especially protecting our most vulnerable. So turning to those tools that, Lindsay, you mentioned, how about treatment? How much will new therapies help to end this? I think that treatments can really mitigate the severity of disease. We are not there yet. As of today, we don't have a magic treatment that can be given to outpatients and substantially decreases their risk of developing severe disease. But we may be getting close because there are several agents that we're starting to hear about that are starting to look good in clinical trials. If those really do pan out, they could have an impact on disease severity. It's externally unlikely that they will have an enormous impact on transmission. I say that as an extrapolation. We have flu drugs that have some impact on transmission. We know that they can decrease disease in household contacts to some extent, but it's a relatively small effect. So I don't think we can rely on therapies as a way to stop the epidemic Certainly, they could be extremely useful tools in mitigating disease. So, Eric, in how I think about this, I think about in order to stop the epidemic, that is very difficult for a patient-delivered treatment that is reactive to an infectious event, because that is too late. And so I think about this, and this is where vaccines are incredibly attractive, because we can give them to everybody like all of our children and stop measles or polio or smallpox, diseases that thankfully many of us haven't seen or see in exceptional circumstances. But the issue with flu, as you point out with drugs and where drugs fit in, is they're reactive to an event. And so I think of it in the nursing home studies or the hospital studies or the household studies, where it's really a preemptive concept, which is we know that The bug has been introduced into that environment, and we can now preemptively protect those who have likely been exposed. This is a very difficult concept when we think of everybody, because right now with SARS-CoV-2, everybody or anybody could be exposed today, next week, or next month, and not even know it. 
So it gets very hard to deploy a tablet or a medication in that setting because the trigger for it is so opaque. And that's one of the key features of SARS-CoV-2 versus SARS-CoV-1. SARS-CoV-1 really wasn't transmissible until you were days into significant illness. While SARS-CoV-2, I may be infectious today and not know it. And that becomes such a challenge in how we control it and prevent the spread. So I think that as we develop antivirals, they have to be thought about in their likely use case scenarios and side effects so that we can minimize the side effects if we use them in large numbers across broad settings. And that's where I think there is a difference in how we approach vaccines versus tablets and where they can have the most impact with the least side effects. Lindsay, I'm glad that we're doing this by Zoom because if you're infected, I don't want to be anywhere near you. But that being said, I will see you later today and we'll both be masked. So although Steve didn't ask this just now, it's still true that simple measures like masking work. We know that from settings like healthcare settings where there's very little transmission. So there are effective measures we can take. It's very hard to see those being used on a population-wide basis, given the resistance to them, in a way that will have an enormous impact on the entire epidemic. But I did want to mention these because they are a way that individuals can control their risk. So Eric, I agree. And I think another tool that would be terrific if we could go to scale is testing and point-of-care testing or home-based testing. And that's another side of this pandemic that would dramatically alter an individual's ability to decrease their risk or a workplace or a school to decrease their risk. And many environments and communities have moved in this direction. But how to have point-of-care rapid testing as another tool to really decrease risk and be able to inform masking and other kinds of distancing practices, I think is an important observation in this pandemic that would allow us to be a step closer to being able to control it. And then what about vaccination? It's had a huge impact on the epidemic thus far. Could vaccines help us bring it to an end? Vaccines might represent our most important tool at this point in the epidemic to control perhaps transmission, but certainly disease. Because once you give a vaccine, people are protected despite they're not following other sorts of guidelines. There's not an absolute protection, obviously, but they're relatively protected, certainly against severe disease. So that's been terrific in having an impact where vaccines are being used. But there are a few limitations to vaccines. We just talked about waning immunity and breakthrough infections with Delta earlier on in the discussion. And so vaccines are far from perfect at this point. In addition, as more variants emerge, it could well be that vaccines or some of the vaccines we use won't be as effective as they are even now. So there might well be catching up that we do with new vaccines to protect against variants or new booster shots as we're already implementing in some people. The other big issue with vaccines, of course, is getting them to people. And there have been two major problems there. One, of course, is that some people aren't adopting them, that there has been a lot of vaccine hesitancy, not just in the U.S., but in many other countries. But most people in the world don't even have access to vaccines. 
So if we're going to use vaccines strategically, we need to get them to everyone. Lindsay already talked about the amplification of virus that occurs in unprotected populations. And that's the genesis of likely most new variants. So if we're not able to control transmission and viral replication everywhere, then we're creating these incubators for the production of new variants. So it's really important that we get these vaccines out there to people across the world, both because we should be protecting them, it's our moral obligation, but also for the less altruistic reason that it protects us. So Steve and Eric, I would argue that hand-washing, sanitation, and vaccines have been the most potent public health measures in the last century. But it's difficult to fully appreciate them and their power, because who among us says thank you for not having a vaccine-preventable illness today? And we know from public health records how much smallpox, measles, mumps, polio, and we can go down the list of pathogens that have been globally controlled or eliminated because of vaccines. So if we look at history, vaccines have been the most potent way to control pandemics and epidemics. However, they're not perfect. And with new pathogens, we have to learn how to improve them. We have to improve them to elicit the best immune response, the best immune response through time, and also to be active against the pathogen, which is evolving in the context of the immunologic selective pressure of the vaccines. So I'm cautiously optimistic, as with other pathogens and other vaccines, that a COVID vaccine can work as other vaccines have. But that will take time, science, investigation, and repeatedly improving on what we have learned. So I'm optimistic, Steve, but it's not something that will be a light switch where tomorrow, now that we have a vaccine, the virus is gone because there are substantial scientific issues that we still have to work out through time. And then, Eric, as you point out, the equity, accessibility and deliverability challenges are not inconsequential. And I hope we have learned, as we should every year from flu for decades, that a respiratory pathogen anywhere affects everybody everywhere. It's not a new lesson. It's just COVID has forced us to really think about this. And we need to think about global access and equity to really control these pathogens. So I'm optimistic that vaccines can have a huge impact and is our best hope of controlling COVID. But we should not think because we have an effective or several effective vaccines that we're done. There are still many more challenges we have to overcome to make this work the way we in society want it to work and that it has the potential to. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric. 